I didn't have a lot of clarity. And I think that's part of the, the success path. I think I always thought back to say, if I went to business school and I knew the odds of, of the chance of success of starting this business and actually turning it into something, I, I, I may have not done it. I didn't have those facts and figures. I was just passionate about hemp. I was passionate about health. I like, I like talking to people about it. I like building community around it. And then from there as an entrepreneur, I like solving problems. And so it, I just did that. And for many, for sure, for the first five years, I didn't get, I didn't take a salary or any pay for the first couple of those years. But for the first five years, it felt like many times I was going towards the light, going towards my passion, just doing things that I, waking up and doing something that I wanted to do every day. It didn't really feel like work. Hey there, listeners. Thank you for tuning into your go-to podcast, The Free Retiree Show, where we talk about wealth, talk about career, and what we learn from people that have done amazing things. I'm your host, wealth manager, Lee Michael Murphy. I've been alongside the pride of Silicon Valley attorney, Matt McElroy. What's going on? You tripped me out there. I'm usually, you usually intro me second. Yeah, I, I totally know. thought you I know, I know. I just messed it up on you guys. And... <laughs> The best choice that LinkedIn has ever made, Sergio Patterson. What is up, everyone? Happy Friday. Before we get into it, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. If you have a question, financial-related, legal-related, career-related, make sure you send it to ask at com. Today, we have an amazing episode for you. We're going to be discussing what it's like to take an idea and turn it into a multi-million dollar company. We've all had a dream of starting a company, making a living off of it. But what if you could take that one step further and make it a massively successful multi-million dollar company? Our guest today has done just that. We have Mike Fata. He co-founded Manitoba Harvest Hemp Foods from 1998 to 2016. He ran all aspects of the company as chairman of the board and CEO. In February 2019, Mike helped with the strategic sale of Manitoba Harvest for $419 million. Oh my gosh, guys. What would you guys Damn. do? What would you do? I we're would, ask, I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be talking to us right now. Yeah. Would we all be friends if this happened? No, you guys never <laughs> see me again. I, I, gosh, I'm interested. To, I am interested to hear what happens when you make that amount of money. Mike is a well-known keynote speaker. He's been featured in publications all around the world to discuss topics such as nutrition, hemp foods, organic agriculture, sustainable business, and entrepreneurship. And he is currently the CEO of Fata and Associates. He is chairman of the board of Soul Cuisine, director of Canadian Health Foods Association, and investor and advisor to a portfolio of companies. And he's won amazing awards such as the Young Entrepreneur of the Year, Socially Responsible Business Award, Top 40 Under 40 company of the year, entrepreneur of the year, top 100 health influencers. And Mike is passionate about health, entrepreneurship, mentorship, and his purpose is to share it with the world. Man, what a guest we have landed today. Oh my gosh. He must've got the wrong podcast. Mike, how are you doing this morning? We are so happy to have you. Doing well. Thank you. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Makes me feel a little bit old when you uh, read through the bio. <laughs> 
I know I cut I cut out the years that you won the award just to just to help, but no, I'm just kidding. You're looking great. I'm looking at when you started this company. You're I mean you're older, but you look better than all of us. This is true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean that people that are listening to this podcast, you can't see you can't see Mike, but he's a handsome man. Maybe but no Mike, video on this one. He's making this. I know we got we got to go video on this one. But Mike, so going back in your journey, you're you're good looking guy right now. You look lean, but I heard in your bio you used to be 300 pounds. Is this true? And tell us how did that happen? Yeah, it is true. I appreciate the compliment. I take health very seriously. But yeah, when I was 13 years old, I, I had a bad accident and broke both bones in my leg. And I was always a chubby kid before that, eating probably too much junk food and uh, fast food. And But that was kind of a down spiral. And by the time I was 18 years old, I felt found myself weighing 300 pounds and being sick and tired uh, all the time. And then I decided to do something about it and changed my health and changed my whole lifestyle. And over the last 25 years, I've been all health all the time, personally, and uh, and also in business. You, you mentioned well, fast food. Switch? Oh, sorry, Mac. Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead, dude. <laughs> I was just going to say, well, what triggered that switch into the health focus on your health like that? Yeah, it was kind of two things. I mean, I, I literally was sick and tired of being sick and tired. It, it being 300 pounds or 320 pounds is, is not easy. It, 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 every day hurts and every day is kind of an emotional roller coaster and just life is not uh, enjoyable. And, and I, I had enough of that. And also, I uh, at that time wanted a, a girlfriend that wasn't a friend. And I think those two motivated us <laughs> together had me set out and say, hey, I'm going I'm I'm to do this. And I was fortunate enough, uh, I was fortunate that my, my older brother uh, was a little chubby, but he'd already get, got into working out. And uh, when I made that decision, he said, hey, I'll take you to the gym and uh, start working out with you. So he was also part of being a catalyst. Yeah, I, I was thinking as a parent, I've got a nine-year-old and I think something I worry about is it's so much easier to eat bad, Mike, than it is to eat good. And I think like where I worry is sometimes I just am like, I don't feel like cooking. And then I'm like, let me go grab something fast. Did that, like, how do you get over that mindset of like really getting So You mentioned you're serious about your health. How did, was that a process? Like how long was that process? What goes into that? I'm just curious there. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that's, that is the challenge with fast food, right? It's too convenient. It's highly processed. It's low cost, even maybe from the dollars and cents of it. And so it is too, uh, too tempting. For me, it was a, um, it was a full lifestyle change. And a big part of it was starting to realize and think about what it was going to feel like after I ate the food that I was about to eat, or what it was going to feel like after I did the exercise that I had yet to do for the day. And I think that that really helped to bridge the gap because when you, you go and eat a burger and fries, you can feel like weighed down and heavy and not want to do anything after. And that's not going to be really productive to hitting the workout, doing other things that are positive to to health, like sleep well. And But it, it was a journey and it's been, it still is a journey. It's been 25 years, but so, so good and so worth the start. Mike, so one thing I've noticed in my own life and just from observing other people is a lot of times when we will we have these unhealthy eating habits, it's more psychological for the people that are extremely overweight. For you, was there any like psychological or emotional things that you were dealing with cause you to eat like that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I've done a lot of healing and emotional processing and therapy in my later years. Uh, but uh, you know, I think 
it started as convenience. Uh, McDonald's set up right beside my school. We had hamburger day, hot dog day. And then, and, and we, I grew up with a, a poor single mom. And, uh, and when, she, when we would get paid, we'd go to McDonald's as a treat on that two weeks. And then I got older and I thought, and McDonald's set up outside my school, I thought I can have a treat whenever I want. So this $2, $3 here and there for fast food. But that did lead into food addictions where I struggled from overeating and binge eating and then trying to correct that by not eating. And, and it was a vicious cycle that turned more than just physical. There, there was also a mental and, and for sure emotional component to it. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. It's just interesting. Um, that, and kudos to you for being able to turn it around. A lot of people never do. It's, you seem to have been able to do it for a sustained long, uh, amount of time. So you got to figure it out. Going back into like how you started your company, tell us, Hemp, how did it pique your interest and how'd you get into what you're doing right now? Yeah. So part of my, part of my health journey, when I first started out, the no fat diet was very popular in the mid 1990s, Dr. Nathan Pritikin and his materials on, if you didn't eat fat, uh, you would lose weight. And I was studying health right off the start and working out and, and I was reading the no fat literature. And so I, I started cutting the fat out of my diet and eating more of a low fat diet. After a couple of years of doing that, I learned the hard way how your body needs uh, fat. I was starting to be skinnier, but I was suffering from ill health. All these things happening to me like eczema and bad skin and my hair was falling out and just stuff that I kind of knew was, hey, this is wrong. And then I learned about the essential fatty acids, omega-3 and omega-6, the, the good fats, the polyunsaturated fats. By reading a book, Dr. Udo Rasmus's book, Fats That Heal, Fats That Kill. In Udo's book, he, he mentioned that the best source of, of essential fatty acids was hemp seed, but it wasn't available in in North America yet. It was still grown in Europe, but because of its associated marijuana, it was banned in, in, in Canada and the US. But I got interested in hemp and I had met the other two co-founders that were in the process of lobbying the Canadian government to legalize hemp. And I saw it, they were activists. I saw the opportunity that people were going to change from the no fat diet to the right fat diet. And I just, I saw that a lot earlier than it was actually happening in the, in the marketplace, but that's definitely where we'd find ourselves today. So you left school at 13. I'm curious, how did that experience, I know you mentioned a single mother, influence you being and becoming an entrepreneur? Yeah. I mean, I've always had an entrepreneur's mindset if I look back, just because I, I did grow up with a, not only a single mom, but a poor family. The, the times with, uh, that we paid all the kind of the rent and the minimum bills, and we had $20 left for the two weeks to buy food. And my mom was very open of sharing our struggles and the family budget. And, and so we could all work together to make the best life that we could, you know, and had a happy life. And so I, I, I always valued the dollar and I always wanted to earn money, whether that was having a paper route when I was, you know, 10 years old. And, and just looking for opportunities. So I never liked school. I didn't fit in school. I'm a smart guy. I, I did well in school up until the age that I didn't want to go anymore. And, and so I, I told my mom, I don't want to go to school. And she said, I can support you in that if you get a job. And I said, deal. Well, that was like a double for me, not going to school and also being able to start earning a, a living. And so I started working full-time at, at 14, doing construction and, and a bunch of odd jobs over five or six years. And that it very much prepared me to be an entrepreneur because I understood how jobs got done, how the world worked, how people were motivated. And by the time before I started the business at 20, I was already a, a foreman at a construction company at that time doing asphalt and concrete. And I had five people on my team that uh, they reported to me. And so all those life experiences, those practical life experiences, I think taught me more than I would in a textbook and, and prepared me for real entrepreneurship. 
So one thing that we kind of always talk about on the show is the struggle and the adversity that the entrepreneurs face. And, and here you have, you have a long run, right? You have 25 years you know, you know, working with this company. Can you tell us a little bit about like kind of some of the adversity and struggles that you faced during that time? Yeah. I, I mean, want to know about the DEA. Yeah. Did you go into court with the DEA? Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, especially I, your industry, right? I, I would have been shatting myself. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think and I put this out there for a lot of other entrepreneurs and just people for to consider you know, this whole concept fail or fail forward. Like you have to fail. If you're if you wanna if you wanna succeed, you have to fail. I, I just and maybe because of my health journey and working out being a big part of it. I've always just thought of it as like, well, you do that when you want to get stronger, right? You exercise your muscles to the point of failure. If you're an athlete or you're trying to lose weight, or you're trying to get in better health, that's kind of normal. You go to the gym and you work out, you rip your muscles up, you go to the point of failure. And then what happens? They get stronger. And so I, I had that mentality early on in business. And it was just like whatever obstacle that came up against us, there was no fear in it because what was the worst thing that was going to happen? We were going to fail and then we would get stronger and learn something. And so there's a tremendous amount, like getting into hemp foods in 1998, hemp was still very weird. In in 2022, hemp uh, and cannabis are, they're legal in Canada. It's legal in the US now. You can generally talk about it and people are have some education. 24 years ago, People didn't understand. They thought from the misinformation campaigns that hemp uh, and marijuana were the same thing. And so they would just literally laugh and walk by. So struggles in the business, trying to sell something to someone, and they just laughed and walked by and, and said like, no, I don't do that thing at all. And then every time that we were growing the business and had some success, we had an equal or, or opposite kind of headwind that was trying to push us back. You know, the DEA being one of them. We spent, we were three years in the business, so 2001. We launched in the U.S. and we took all of our resources that we had, which weren't that much at that time, to support our U.S. launch, which we launched September 1st, 2001 on the East Coast. And then September 11th happened, which really uh, challenged the business and, and the dollars that we were putting into the launch because it, people were just not doing, you know, the, the, the business changed there for a while as uh, after that event. But three weeks after that, October 9th, um, the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration agency came out and, and said that hemp foods were illegal, which was total bullshit. They weren't legal by US law. You couldn't grow hemp in the US at that time, but you could sell hemp foods. And But it was a, a misinformation campaign and uh, and the media and uh, even retailers caught on and they said they threatened people if stores uh, sold hemp foods, they, the, the owners of the store could actually go to jail. And uh, And thankfully for some very great retail partners like Whole Foods at that time. Whole Foods was like, hey, we're not taking these products off the shelves. We're going to fight the fight because we, we see that's not right. And so we got together with the Hemp Industries Association and, and a bunch of the hemp food companies and, and funded a legal battle against the DEA because we really believed it was wrong. Like they, DEA said that hemp and marijuana were the same thing. Hemp was the fiber and the seed of the plant and marijuana was the flower which is totally false. Hemp and marijuana are related, but you know, hemp is a, a different crop. It's grown for food and it's grown for fiber. It doesn't have any drug aspect to it. So it was a two and a half year court case. And in after two and a half years in the Ninth Circuit Court in San Francisco, we defeated the DEA. All three judges voted in favor of the Hemp Industry Association wow. and said that hemp foods were not illegal. The DEA had no jurisdiction to get in the way of hemp food sales. And, and that was definitely one of the first major milestone kind of turning points for a, a major failure turning into a major victory. I mean, had that gone the that other though? way? Like, yeah, I'm curious, like had that gone the other way, I guess your story is complete. It would have been done. 
done. Yeah. I mean, the US was was 50% of, of the business when we were doing about 100 million in sales when I left the business and, and half of that was in the US. And so if the US, if hemp wasn't legal to be sold in the US, the, the story would have been very different for sure. My, how'd you fund this lawsuit? Like, were you kind of worried? Like, oh my gosh, this is going to be expensive. We have to go to court and all this stuff. For sure. I mean, we, and, and, and again, it was a group of companies. We were one of the, one of the sponsors and together as, as the trade association, the hemp industry association, the good thing about working in hemp over the years is hemp was the underdog and people like to root for the underdog and, and support it. So we had lawyers that, that had very reduced wage and even were volunteering their time because they didn't believe that they believed that the government was taking a wrong stance as well. So, but yeah, a two and a half, it, it is more the uncertainty for two and a half years, not only the costs uh, into it, but the uncertainty of like, we're continuing to make investments into the marketplace and any day that rug could be pulled out from underneath us or the door be closed. It, it, it was a lot of stress to work through in that time. And I think without the benefit was having a peer group of like companies together with the with the same goal, which is one of the things I learned in, in entrepreneurship is and, and why I like the word co-opetition instead of competition, because even if you're competing with a different business, you probably have more things that you can cooperate on than, than you can actually compete on. And just a, such a better way to build community and and have a great time in entrepreneurship. Yeah, I was going to say you not only this decision not only impacted your company but probably hundreds of companies to allow them to grow in the, the whole marketplace and everything, right? Yeah, it did. Yeah, we. I mean, we were the industry leader and had the the largest market share, but it did. It literally, there was a hundred plus companies in the U.S. that that were trying to um, establish themselves and and all benefited from the decision. What year did that decision come out? 2004. And it, did, did that kind of, I guess, kind of, I mean, I know that was, if it went the other way, it would have been very bad, but did, would you say that the industry started to take off after that decision? Yeah. I mean, we were probably a million dollars in sales at that time. So it was really small. It took us five, it took the Manitoba Harvest five years to get to the first million dollars in sales. And then from year five to year 10, uh, we went from 1 million to 10 million. And then years 10 to 20, we went from 10 million to 100. And so it was continued growth. But I think, yeah, when the DEA was defeated, it did establish at least a baseline where people said, hey, now we can, this is real and we can continue to invest. Although hemp wasn't, hemp wasn't legal in the US at that time. So you couldn't grow hemp. Not, you couldn't grow hemp in the US. We didn't get hemp legal. We got hemp legal to grow in Canada in 19. 1998. And at that time, we thought just two or three more years and hemp's going to be legal in the US. It has to be. Look at all, look what happened in Canada and it has all the information of what the benefit of the crop is. But it took another 20 years. It wasn't until 2018 that hemp was legalized in the US. So 2004 was, it was just a, it was just a milestone or kind of a foundation kind of stone to build off of. Yeah, I was really excited uh, when I found out you were coming on our podcast because I was going through my pantry and I was like, oh my gosh, I have his hemp hearts in my pantry. It was very exciting. Going back to the beginning, like when you started this idea, like, I mean, so many people have ideas and aspirations of starting a business and avenues of how they go about it in the beginning or what they think success looks like. For you at the very ground level, what did you, what was your mindset and like, what were you trying to accomplish? I think that'd be really interesting and great to hear for a lot of entrepreneurs. We have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to our podcast, but like, where was your mindset in terms of what's the strategy to make this success? I, I didn't have a lot of clarity. And I think that's part of the, the success path. I think I, I always thought back to say, if I went to business school and I knew the odds of, of the chance of success of starting this business and actually turning it into something, I, I, I may have not done it. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't have those facts and figures. I was just passionate about hemp. I was passionate about health. 
I like, I like talking to people about it. I like building community around it. And then from there as an entrepreneur, I like solving problems. And so it, I just did that. And for many, for sure, for the first five years, I didn't get, I didn't take a salary or any pay for the first couple of those years, but for the first five years, it felt like many times I was going towards the light, going towards my passion, just doing things that I, waking up and doing something I wanted to do every day. It didn't really feel like work. And off the start, I had saved up a little bit of money from my other construction and odd jobs to actually give myself a bridge where I could work on this project for 18 months with, and, and I had enough kind of runway, but I didn't have a master plan. And if I did have this thought in the back of my head coming from a, a poor single mom growing up, I, I wanted to be a millionaire. And so I thought, well, if we did a million dollars in business, that would be a milestone. And, and it was a little bit of a rude awakening after five years and getting to a million dollars in sales for the business and realizing for the company that we're creating, because we're manufacturing and we're growing things at a farm base, a million dollars was not a sustainable level of sales for our business. We needed like 10 times that. So like my, my perception <laughs> really changed and said, oh, shit, we made it here, but this is nowhere. It's not sustainable if we exist here, where some entrepreneurs can start a business and be successful, a couple hundred thousand dollar business and have a, a good business and a good job for themselves. Mark, I was curious. So you had a, a $419 million exit. I'm always like, what is that like? Like you, you come from humble beginnings. Like, did you have, can you talk to us just about that moment where you decided you were going to take this exit? It's like, got to be like disco ball, yeah. moonwalking, running through the neighborhood, naked. Any regrets like that? on that? Like, I'm just curious, like what is, what goes into that? Talk to us about yeah. that moment and like, yeah. yeah. Well, we were fortunate to sell the business actually twice. We sold the majority to, and we got we brought in a private equity a partner in 2015 in a 132 million dollar uh, transaction, and and so that was kind of my first time at it, which was life changing at that time for me, and it, and it was a big deal, like the 100 million dollar plus deals to do that in business is a 12 or 18 month process. Uh, mm. A lot of investments on accountants and lawyers and deal teams and structure to try to make these put these deals together between uh, businesses. And so very stressful time. But you're right, at the end of that, when I literally went and, and back then it was picking up a check from, from the lawyer's office, I think I popped the bottle of champagne for like 100 days in a row. <laughs> I, even though that was a little out of bounds for me from a health standpoint, I knew I deserved it. I knew it was my time in my life. And, and I really celebrated those moments. I'm, I'm a big believer in, in, in work hard, play harder and keep that balance that, that way. And so I, I, I did that at that time. And so, and then with the private equity sponsor, we, we acquired our, our, our biggest competitor, one of my uh, friend's companies that had been a co-opetition for 20 years or 15 years in. And we, ha we did a $42 million acquisition of his company, merged both of the companies together, which really set us up for the for the $419 million transaction. That was a lot more smooth process because uh, we got chased by one of the large uh, cannabis companies that had a tremendous amount of money and saw the benefit of the market we'd created for hemp hearts. And, and so that it was another life-changing moment for me, but that one was, was, was not all positive. And because uh, when we sold the full business, the day that it, the business closed, I was no longer welcome in the company, which a lot of entrepreneurs don't think about. They think about the benefit of like, yeah, the popping the bottle of champagne, getting more money in your bank account, uh, but you don't think about the grieving process, the emotional process of mm. not being welcome in the place of business that you created. And, mm. and if people haven't gone through that before, I, I kind of relate to them. It's like your kid's not wanting to talk to you one day and you don't even have the ability to talk to them, even oh. though you, ra you raised them for 20 years. And, and it's just hard. It's hardship. 
And unfortunately, at the same time, my my ex-wife and I decided after 15 years, it was time to uh, to separate and get a divorce. And my mom died unexpectedly, all within like a month of each other. And so it was like a triple grieving process. And wow. and it was just a really challenging time in life. Although I had a I had, I had financial success, I, I had a lot of I had a lot of personal growth and kind of grieving to to work through. What happened after? Like what happened? Like. During that process, I'm curious, like, was the exit always a part of your plans or was it like, what tri- is it? You got an offer, the, num- the money was too good to pass up or was there that yeah, time in your life? Was it just time to move on? Yeah, at that we have we had shareholders in the business, and so it was a it was a it was a combined decision of the board of directors and the shareholders. The timing was right. Uh, I personally saw that that was likely because as soon as you raise capital and you have shareholders, you need to give liquidity and you need to give money back to the shareholders. And, and so I always thought I wanted to retire after we sold the business. And then come out of retirement, I call it kind of Mike 2.0, and like, what was I going to do after that? Because I spent 20 years as an entrepreneur growing a business from zero to $100 million, many 100-hour work weeks, like too many 100-hour work weeks for the average person to be interested in entrepreneurship at that level, really. And so I, I know I needed a break. I needed to kind of recoup. And with the kind of triple grieving loss, I became almost a monk for like six months and I stayed home and I, I worked on my health and I and I... I, I asked myself questions like, what's my meaning of my life? What do I really want to do? And, and, and where, what, now that I have kind of opportunities for time and financial resources, wh- where am I going to spend that? And, and, and now I think three years later, I'm in a, a spot that where I wanted to be, um, which is helping other entrepreneurs to fulfill their vision, fulfill their mission by investing in them, advising them, even mentoring companies that I'm not involved with and doing a whole bunch on the give back to support other entrepreneurs. And, and it's a, uh, I feel very grateful that I'm living my best day ever, every day. And, and that's a big part of it. The give oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> so you've reached a level of success that very few ever get to. You obviously, even though you didn't know what you were doing in the beginning, you obviously figured it out and figured out a strategy to make yourself successful and the company successful. Now that you're getting to mentor and help other entrepreneurs, I imagine you have a really good idea of what most of them aren't doing right or what you did that gave you that success. Can you share a little bit into like what the magic formula really was for you that you maybe think sets you apart from the majority of entrepreneurs? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think... um, I think I realized, and it was through my it was through my health changes that being an entrepreneur is similar to being a an athlete. You have to train personally and grow personally and prepare yourself. Li- live a lifestyle that allows you to compete at the highest level constantly. And and because of my life changes and losing 100 pounds and then get going from obese to uh, more athletic shape, I knew that had to be part of it. And and I prioritized uh, keeping myself in a really healthy, uh, balanced place so that I could do my best job and learn all these things as an entrepreneur that you don't learn until you have that experience. And now, to the benefit of people that I mentor, coach, and advise, 
I can't turn that shit off. I can look at any business and just quite simply, I break it down to telling entrepreneurs what I would do if I was in their situation. I can understand I'm a quick read of a business and depending if they're, it's a lot different if the business is just a startup or it's at a million dollars in sales or it's, it's at $10 million in sales or, or it's, it's in a higher growth state, but strategic, what the next moves are from a sales and marketing and operations and finance standpoint, the way to organize team and build culture, these key things for business are just, again, top of mind for me. I, can't, I literally can't turn it off. The scars on my back are, are too deep and it's just who I am now to be able to operate in that space. And I like sharing that with other people. For coaching and stuff, do you, do you focus mainly on uh, entrepreneurs in the health area or health and fitness? Yeah. I, I just, and I encourage people to, I encourage my kids to do the same thing. Like do things that you're passionate about. If you're doing things you're passionate about, you're, it's not going to feel like work and you're going to outcompete someone that's doing something similar that they're not passionate about. So I'm super passionate about health. I'm, I, I feel very grateful that 25 years later, I personally put a lot of focus to health. In my business, I put a lot of focus to health. So I, I generally stay in, in the in the natural products space. There's thankfully thousands and thousands of great uh, companies doing all these wonderful things to make natural and organic foods and products available to consumers that are interested in kind of changing their changing their health. And so I, I usually don't go outside of that because I, I just enjoy it so much. And literally a, co- a product that I like in my house, a food that I eat, that I enjoy when I meet the founders, it's almost like meeting a rock star for me. It's <laughs> I, I, I enjoy meeting them so much and talking to them. And if I can help them out, it, it, even better. That's how Lee felt this morning. I know. So my hemp heart says like, yeah, <laughs> got Mike coming on. So Mike, how do we get this company to scale? Like if we're entrepreneurs and we're like, man, we feel like we hit this plateau. We're, we're not growing. Like how did you break through those scaling issues that a lot of companies face? You did it phenomenally. But I think a lot of entrepreneurs are, they get stuck in that spot. Like they might grow a little bit more, but it's like snail pace growth. And I think you were able to figure out the riddle on how to get around that. Yeah. Every company is different, but it's all about strategic planning. And, and, and so I'm a big believer in, in making a plan uh, and then executing the plan and then getting insights from your results that you just created and going back and uh, readjusting your plan and then executing it again. So the better you get as an entrepreneur of doing that instead of the opposite of that, which is just kind of winging it, you, you'll be better. Like I, I and, and I, to break it down in another analogy, I say you're a, a good business, a good entrepreneur, you're farming, you're not hunting. If you go out and, and you're hunting, it's this shiny object syndrome for entrepreneurs. Oh, I'm going to maybe do a little bit of that. Oh, there's an opportunity. Oh, that, that, that looks like something that's exciting where if you're farming, you need to have a plan. You, you need to think about the business from, and I like departmentally thinking about it. What's my three or four things from a sales standpoint that I need to accomplish this year or you know, if you pick a period, three or four things from a marketing standpoint, operations, finance that have to happen for this business to grow because it's all, it's everything all together that you need to work right to scale. And, and so we've been, I, I, that's some of the things I do when I work one-on-one and mentor entrepreneurs, but I've also started to try to take that and make some of the, that more available widely which is why Greg Fleischman and I created fatfleischman.org, which is a give back project that we've taken all of our tools that we developed over 20 years of being in business and, and made it available to the entrepreneurship community for free. So they can go and, and find a good 
financial modeling uh, template or a strategic planning uh, a presentation or an investor list or uh, information on how you establish a company or how you set up a board of directors or an advisory board. And a year and a half since we've since we put that out there, this give back project, there's like 10,000 entrepreneurs that have, that have accessed the toolbox and are using it on a regular basis. And, and so it's a form of mass mentorship that I feel that I can help because I believe that entrepreneurship is is the is the greatest thing you could do. If you get into a situation where you're aligning your personal passions with a way to to capitalize and make money for yourself and your your family, it's a great gift. Hey Mike, you I'm checking out your LinkedIn and you're you're an investor in a ton of pretty cool looking companies. I'm just curious, like what's your What's the best one you're invested in right now? I don't know if you can speak to that and, and why. You're, like you got that's like asking you what's your favorite kid. Yeah, like you got nuts for cheese. I see the shirt. I'm, I'm wearing midday squares. So purposeful <laughs> snacking, all kinds of yeah. stuff. What's going on, man? What do we, what's what's on tap? What's next? Yeah, I mean, so I want to invest in, in other entrepreneurs in, in, in our space. I've never been a big social media guy in the last two years since the pandemic. I took to social media because we couldn't go out and I used to love going to trade shows. I still do, do love going to trade shows, but we didn't have any trade shows. So I took to LinkedIn and said, hey, maybe I can go and meet these entrepreneurs and these founders and have chats with them on LinkedIn, which I have. And I've committed to having like 10 mentorship chats a week, which I've done over the last two years which has afforded me to talk to literally a thousand founders in our, and so I, and helping them out. But what comes up from that is, and, and maybe to my investment uh, thesis is I like products that I have in my house that I enjoy as a health consumer. And then when I get a chance to meet the, if they're great people, I want to be involved in that. Cause I think people, I think good product and, and great people make a great business. The, the, the piece about putting money in, investing, or helping with strategy and planning, those things come naturally to me. So it's really about finding the right uh, the right product and the right people. And so I have nine companies, eight companies in my portfolio, because we just sold Soul Cuisine two months ago in another you know very large deal, $125 million transaction. But I have eight other companies that uh, are all, I believe, movers and shakers, like really making a difference in the product and their go-to-market strategy. And I, I think that, that it's, it's a portfolio that'll keep on seeing these very large deals happening in the future just because the fundamentals of the business are very strong. Uh, and I, I feel grateful that that I have access to to founders that, that want me in, involved in their companies uh, because of the success that I've created. So you're kind of like Shark Tank for uh, natural products, right? Well, I guess so. Mark Cuban, I always said like a shark, tra- shark tank, or in Canada they have the Dragons uh, Den, right? Dragon, Dragons Den. And I like. Oh, I haven't seen shows. that one. I don't watch much TV, but I do enjoy those shows because I'm usually looking up the uh, founder on LinkedIn and see if I can connect with them. But I'm like, why is there something more? <laughs> why is there something more friendly like the the, the lion? the lion cub club or something like, <laughs> support the entrepreneurs and don't like beat them down in their business like lift everybody up and so but yeah I, I enjoy it I, I don't have a master plan of like I want to have 50 companies in my portfolio but I, I do know that when I'm interested in a product and a business that I don't make an investment and so I, I don't think I don't think it'll be eight companies I think there'll be you know I added three or four companies last year and and, and maybe that's the same uh, rhythm or pace that that it'll go to I don't have an interest right now in being larger than that. And it's our family's uh, family's money. I'm not part of a fund. I don't want to hire a team. I don't like to, things to feel like work. I, I want them to feel like my passion. And if I maintain that space, I'll do it all day long, effortlessly. You know? So Mike, it's been amazing having you on, man. Like You share some amazing stories with us. People that are listening to this podcast that want to follow you and learn more about all the stuff you're doing. It's, I see that you're into, you have your own podcast now. 
You got the the free resource. Uh, how can people get a hold of all these things? Yeah, I mean LinkedIn is the best spot for me. I'm I'm active on LinkedIn on on a daily basis. So if you want to connect on LinkedIn, also the my profile on LinkedIn has all my projects and, and the different portfolio companies. If people are interested in checking that out, and, and uh, yeah, happy to connect there. So that's the best space. And to close it, why don't you give the listeners a little bit about your mindset every day? Like what's going on in Mike's head, like as he approaches every single day, or it could be at the beginning of the year, but what's that mindset look like? Yeah, I've been working on it for a long time and and I continue to improve it. But for me, it's the best day ever every day. And, and what is my best day ever look like? From a time block, I spend two to three hours on wellness, working out and, and, and eating good food and generally taking care of myself. I like to spend four or five hours a day on on work and activities that are building team and and working on my projects, working on my businesses. I like to I like to play and learn through play. It's very important for me. And then spend time with my spend time with my family. So I I keep on tweaking what is the best day ever look like for me. The best day ever is not no work. And maybe some people think like that, like, oh, I just want to, I want to be successful so I could retire, but I've lived that. It's not healthy. It's not good. And so for me, it, it includes work and I keep on enhancing my best day ever every day. Love that, man. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Free Retiree Show. So long for now. Securities offered through Securities America Incorporated, member FINRA, www.finra.org, SIPC, www.sipc.org, a separate entity. Lee Michael Murphy is licensed for the California Department of Insurance, license 0H18660. Lee Michael Murphy is a investment advisor representative with Securities America Advisors, a registered investment advisor. The Free Retiree, Securities America Advisors, and Securities America Incorporated are separate entities. Career Advisor Sergio Patterson, Attorney Matt McElroy are not affiliated with Securities American Advisors or Securities America Incorporated. Securities American Advisors, Securities American Incorporated, and its representatives do not provide tax or legal advice. Therefore, it's important to coordinate with your tax or legal advisor regarding your specific situation. The content heard in this podcast is not intended to be tax, investment, or legal advice and is intended as general guidance only. You should contact your own tax advisor, financial advisor, or attorney to answer questions about your specific situation or needs before acting upon this information. Third-party source information or comments are not verified, may not be accurate, and are not necessarily representative of all client or audience experience. A portion of this event was paid by a third party. The opinions of career advisor Sergio Patterson do not reflect the opinions of LinkedIn Incorporated or Microsoft Corporation. The opinions of attorney Matt McElroy do not reflect the opinions of Castaneda and company.